Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais Nachalos, the laws of inheritance, inheritance law. And we gave introductions explaining various axiomatic rules. Hilchais Nachalos or Necholos, Beidik Revi, Chapter 4. The question is, who is authorized to say, this is my relative, this is not my relative? We talked upon it earlier. We talked about midwife, father, mother. Now he says, oh, amen, if somebody says, Zebni, this fellow is my son. Hey, or Ze'achi, this fellow is my brother. Hey, obi, this is the brother of my father. A Sha'ar Hayershimesay or other heirs. Afa Pishaheda Banoshim Sha'inan Mugzokim Shaim Kravov, even though this statement was made about people that nobody up to now assumed they were his relatives, just newcomers. Can he be trusted? The answer is Arezenemon, he is believed. Vayiroshenu and he will, he should inherit him. This is true whether he said it in a state of health. Or he said it when he is on his deathbed. We believe him because a person is trusted when he says, this is my son, this is my brother, this is my uncle, or another heir. Even if the person lost his power of speech, God forbid, he became mute because and he wrote with his own handwriting that this is his heir. Just as we learned earlier, we check to see if he understands. We ask him questions. We say, is it light outside? Is today Monday? And so on and so forth. And if he answers right, we then say to him, is this really your brother? Or so on. That's the way we double-check to make sure that he knows what he's saying. What if we assumed always that this and this fellow was his brother or his uncle, and he said, guess what? He is not my brother. He is not my cousin or whatever. He is not believed. Because we suspect that something's going on here. But he is trusted regarding someone who we always assumed is his son to say, is not really my son. And he should not be his heir. It appears to me, even if the son already had children. We learned earlier that once a person's son has children, one may not be believed to say, this is not my son. Because if he's not your son, people will assume he's illegitimate. He's a mamza. In that case, he just illegitimized all of his offspring. A person can talk about his own son, but he can't talk about his grandchildren. That's like too much. 
And we learn, therefore, because the son has sons, we don't assume that the son and, by extension, the grandchildren are mamzerim, are illegitimate, because a person has no right to do that to his grandchildren. With regard to inheritance, he is trustworthy. And he shall not inherit him. Three, if he says, this is my son, and then he immediately says, he's really my slave. Now, there's a very fine line between a son and a slave because throughout history there were times when a man would consort with his servant woman and have children and the question is in halacha, is this a kosher child or is it not? We learned earlier extensively that the son of a servant woman is a servant, is a slave. He's not a legal child, not a Jew. So if he says, this is my son, and then he says, this is my servant, which means you just illegitimize the whole kid, the whole son. Ain't is not believed. A person does not have a right to do that to his son. Omar, if he said, Abdi, this is my servant. Because of Omar, and then he said, Bini, this is my son. Even though we see that he serves him like a servant. Nemon, he is believed to say he's my son. Omar Abdi, the fact that he said he's my servant, claim and he means to say, he is to me like a servant, but he's really my son. But if he called him Ebed ben Meazuz, a slave worth a hundred zuz, and so on and so forth, who creates a bidwarim elo, which somebody would only say to a slave, and then his retraction is not accepted because we suspect that he's really a slave. And again, this is a big question. What if he was going through customs, the border? As they would say, as I, we would go into uh, Canada at the Plattsburgh crossing, Montreal. You have anything to declare, eh? So when they say to him, do you have anything to declare, why are they asking that? Because they want taxes. They're not taking a survey, they want money. So he's crossing through customs, the Yomar, and he said, this is my son, why? Because if it was his servant, his slave, it's property, he has to pay taxes. You figure, let me, let me say it's my son. It's free. And then he changed his mind and he said, Abdi, he is my servant, Naaman. He is believed. Why? Because the only reason he said is my son, to avoid taxes. And it's normal for people to try to avoid paying tax. What if he said in the customs department, Abdi, who is my servant? That's the last thing somebody wants to say, because that will make him pay tax. And then he said, who is my son. He's not believed. Because the last thing somebody wants to lie about is saying somebody's your servant, which becomes a taxable item. 
Now, in general, he says, male and female servants, and should not be referred to by respectable terms of endearment, like Abba, Plaini, like father, so on, Vima Plainis, and mother, so on, which is a term of endearment. You have a servant named John, you call him Papa John. Because we don't want a problem to develop. Because if that's going to happen, ultimately people are going to believe that this slave or servant is his father. And therefore, he's not a kosher Jew. If the male or female servants were VIP, they could have been in the family for years and elderly, respected people. Yeshlon Kale and people know about them. Everybody knows them. And the children and the servants of their master, like the children of the head of the Jewish people, these may be called with a respectable name of Papa or Mama something. Now comes the issue, somebody had a female servant. And she gave birth to him. A son, she gave birth to a son, fathered by him. And he acted with this son, not as if he was a servant, but as if he was a son. Now, how could it be that somebody can consort with his servant woman and have a Jewish son? There is only one way. Before he consorted with her, he liberates her, she becomes a full Jew, and he marries her. Because he said, this is my son. And his woman was liberated and is a full Jewess, except that he didn't publicize his business. If he's a Torah scholar, or he's a reliable reputable, God-fearing Jew, who meticulously observes the commandments, then we do not suspect he would consort with his servant woman. Then this son can be his heir, because everything he said must be true. The this works for inheritance, but he cannot have him marry a Jewish girl until there's proof that this mother was liberated before she gave birth. Because as far as we're concerned, we always believe that she was a servant woman. But if he was not meticulously God-fearing and observant, or a great Torah scholar, he was just a regular guy, if he was less than a regular guy, if he was a guy who did whatever he wanted, we have to assume that this child is in fact a servant. And ultimately, his father's brothers can sell him because he's a servant. If the father has no other son other than him, then the father's wife 
actually has to have the Leverite marriage performed because he's not a son, he's a servant. And this is the law that appears to me, that follows the tradition. And others do not distinguish between a kosher, God-fearing, meticulously observant man and the average person, only with regard to the idea, that his brothers should not sell him. Other than that, it's the same. Yeshmi Shahira and others ruled that even for inheritance purposes we should not distinct we should not distinguish between one Jew and another. But this is not a reliable view. Now the Rambam goes on to say in seven, anyone who comes along and says he's an heir. We don't have to do a DNA test using modern terminology, but we can believe him. Ketzad, for example, Edim Shehidu, if witnesses come along and testify, that this fellow, say these witnesses, we know that he is so-and-so's son, or so-and-so's achiv brother, even though, how do they know? They were not there at conception, what do they know? They don't know the true lineage, they're just saying where we come from, this was the general assumption, the CW, the conventional wisdom. That's sufficient testimony to have these people declared heirs. Now in the final paragraph of this chapter, very interesting scenario. Yaakov Shemes, Yaakov, the father, dies. And he left two sons who are heirs. The two sons... The oldest one conveniently is called Reuben, and the second son conveniently is called Shimon. So Yaakov died, leaves two sons, Reuben and Shimon. And we are not aware of any other child other than Reuben and Shimon. So Reuben and Shimon are heirs, and they're going to split the pot. Tophas Reuben, Levi Omar. However, surprise, surprise, Reuben grabs a guy off the street, let's call him Levi, and he says, Levi, he's our brother too. A brother from another mother. We he's our brother. The Shimon Omer, and Shimon says, I don't know, I don't know. Reuben says he's my brother, he's our brother. Shimon says maybe. So what happens now? Shimon, who never in his life knew this guy was his brother, for his purpose, he's not a brother. So Shimon gets half. Let's talk in terms of half. Half is the same as three-sixths. Three-sixths is half. Reuben and Reuben who says there's a new brother on the block, he gets shlish a third. One third is two sixths. So now we've given away five sixths. Because Reuben admitted that there are three brothers, so he needs to reduce his portion, although Shimon did not reduce his portion. 
the Levi and the new brother, Natal, he takes Shtus, a sixth. So Levi, the new brother, gets one sixth. Shimon gets two sixths. I'm sorry. Reuben gets two sixths. Shimon gets three sixths. So Shimon got his half, but Reuben gave a third of his three thirds away, or three sixths. Mace Levy, what if Levy dies now? Who gets Levy's third back? Obviously Reuben, because Shimon didn't give him anything. What if Levy also inherited other, ter- uh, 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 other possessions? Why shouldn't Reuben and Shimon split it? Because Reuben doesn't say to Shimon, he's not our brother. So why shouldn't Shimon get part of the estate of Levi who just died? What if this one-sixth that came from Reuben's part went up in value? And the way it went up in value is on its own, not through investment, but through natural events. And then Levi died, who if it's the kind of prophet that you carry away on your shoulders, that's a euphemism. Again, for example, on Novim, grapes which were attached to the ground, and they came to harvest time, they're harvested, and now they carry them on the shoulder. Being that the grapes that were growing at the time changed and they're now in boxes. Well, this is like a new bonus of property. And Reuben and Shimon should divide it. But if they're still attached to the ground, not ready for harvest, then they're only Reuben's. Because just like the property that he got from Reuben's is Reuben's, then the attached grapes are also Reuben. Shimon doesn't get to share. Omar Shimon, but what if the scenario changes? The plot thickens. Shimon says, hey, ain't Levi ze'ochi. Shimon doesn't say, I don't know. He says, Levi is not my brother. No. Not a Levi Reuben said, he is my brother. So Reuben gave him a third of what he has. Remember, we talked about one-sixth. And then Levi dies. Shimon gets nothing because Shimon is the one that screamed, he's not my brother. Reuben alone should inherit the one-sixth that he got. Together with the millions of dollars that he inherited. Now Shimon is suddenly saying, well, maybe he is my brother. So, ah, now it's too late. And this is the same law with all heirs. I'm sorry. The same law is with heirs. A portion of them admit that he is an heir. Others do not admit. That's the way the law applies. End of chapter 4.